0: The following resource is from Christ Community Church. For more information, please visit lovinglord.org. Heavenly Father, we want as your people to not only truly believe and celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago in the city of Bethlehem, we want to be a people that live in accordance with this truth. We believe, Father, that Your Scriptures teach clearly that in the coming of Christ, the age of the Messiah has begun. And we live in that time right now. And so I ask, Lord, that as Your people, we be wise that we live in light of this messianic age that we would see and follow the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And that our lives would reflect that in our simple, loving obedience to Him. Father, I pray that You would magnify Jesus this morning. Show us how great He is. And in His greatness, Father, I pray You would cultivate in each of us a deep desire to follow Him, to know Him, and to love Him. We don't want to be out of step with the times, Lord. If in fact your Son did come 2,000 years ago and this is the Messianic age, then I pray we would not be foolish in our faith, that we would not live like the world lives, as though nothing has changed, but we would live with great anticipation of the Messiah's return and you making all things new. Father, bless us right now with this understanding, I pray, and change our hearts accordingly, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Sermon titles is a question, are you a spiritual boomer? Every single year when December comes around, the world changes just a little bit. People begin to think at times less than themselves and a little more about other people. Gifts are usually given and exchanged, and hospitality is better practiced during the December season. The poor and the needy are cared for a little better during this time of year, and even Jesus' name is allowed into the public square a little more in the month of December. Last week, for example, we celebrated Giving Tuesday. Don't know if you knew that. If you didn't give, you probably didn't know that. Giving Tuesday which is a day set aside to encourage people in the United States to give to their favorite charities, in a single 24-hour period, people gave $3.5 billion because it's that time of year. There's that sense of of service. These little changes that we see each Christmas season actually have really deep roots. It's not just a modern-day occurrence. You see, my friends, 2,000 years ago, on that first Christmas day, God the Father sent His Son to be born of a virgin, to enter into this space-time continuum and not change the world a little bit, but change the world a lot. The coming of God's Son marked a new era in human history. It marked what we call the Messianic Age, and the word Messiah is for the Savior. That's where we get the term Christ a Savior of the world. And so the Messianic age is the age of the Savior. It's a time when we went from promise to fulfillment, when we went from waiting for the last days to entering the last days, as we saw in our study in the book of Revelation. My beloved, for the next five weeks of December, I'd like to spend, I've never done this before. We've never done this before as a church, so I'm I'm a little excited about it five Sundays, looking at two chapters, actually just a chapter and a half in the Gospel of Luke, when God decided to break into human history by sending His Son and changing the world as we know it. It's the final leg of God's redemptive plan where He begins to bring His people in and make things new. Dr. Luke is a master historian. We've heard some sermons that Kirk preached on Jesus in this particular gospel account. And we know that, that Luke was careful about both the historical and theological truths he wrote down. And that's not going to be different here in these first couple chapters. The recipient, the excellent Theophilus, and of course eventually the Christian church, he wanted them to make sure, he wanted Theophilus and he wanted the church to make sure that we had an orderly account of the life, death, and resurrection of this Messiah, of Jesus Christ. We, we know exactly why he came and we have certainty concerning the things surrounding his life, death, and his resurrection around his ministry. So as we focus on the birth of Christ over the next five Sundays, and it may go a little bit longer, I don't know yet, Spirit will determine that, um, I don't want you to live like a boomer. And some of you are saying, I don't, I don't even know what that means. That, that term, you know, a boomer is actually used in terms of um, generations, but it's used today by many younger people. Some of you are smiling because you know it. For those of us who are a little bit older, even those of us who are not technically boomers but acting like boomers. My youngest son loves to at times chide me and says, Dad, you're being such a boomer right now. And I said, are you saying that in love? He says, of course. And then I hand him my iPhone so he can fix something that I cannot figure out. It's usually something to do with technology or something antiquated. It's living as though you're out of step with the times. Over the next five weeks, I want you to realize that the Messianic age is here, and I want you to live in step with the times. I don't want us to be a church of spiritual boomers where we're missing the fact that Christ has come and the kingdom has begun. This morning, we're going to turn our eyes to the angel Gabriel making two visitations. One, to Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, and two, to Mary, whom you know to be the mother of Christ. And in these two encounters, I want our faith to grow in three very simple ways. I want our faith to grow by us knowing for certain the messianic age has come. I want us to see clearly the greatness of the Messiah in this age. And I want us, each of us, to live a life of faith and obedience to this Messiah. Three simple things from this passage, which is amazingly deep in both theology, prophecy, and history. We're not going to be able to cover it in detail like I'd like because of our time constraints but I'd like you to see three things one the age of the messiah I want you to know it the greatness of the messiah I want you to see it and our faith and belief in the messiah I want you to live it clear here's your theme God sent Gabriel to announce the coming messianic age so that we can live in obedience to its king God sent Gabriel to announce the coming of the Messianic age so that we, God's people, can live in obedience to its king, the Messianic king, Jesus Christ. Point number one, the age of the Messiah. Look at verse five in Luke chapter one. If you're not there, please go with me. I'm gonna go back and forth in the text, and I want your eyes to go down on the page. Or that was a boomer statement, right? Maybe your iPhone or your tablet. Verse five, Luke begins with the testimony of Jesus Christ, not starting with Jesus Christ, he starts with John the Baptist, and he tells us about John the Baptist's parents, Zechariah and Elizabeth. They're both descendants of Aaron, they're both part of the priestly family line, and that's going to become important because Zechariah gets his vision inside the temple, only the place where priests could go. We also hear early on that Zechariah and Elizabeth are God-fearing Jews. In other words, they were living in accordance with the statutes and teachings of the Old Covenant. They were the remnant that God had talked about. And even though they had been faithful to the Lord, she never gave birth. Her womb was barren. Now, one of the most important blessings that a Jewish couple could receive was Children And not just children in general, but a male child who could carry on the line of the father. And even though they were were faithful to God, they were not blessed in this way. Look at verse 8. Now while he, speaking of Zechariah, was serving as priest before God, when his division, that's the division of Abijah, there were 24 of them, while his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense, verse 10. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the door of incense, at the hour of incense. So there are thousands of priests in 24 divisions that would take turns one, one week at a time, twice a year, excluding the festivals. And, and in this particular situation, he actually is drawn, he draws a lot now that's, it'd be kind of like us rolling dice or drawing straws. He draws a lot and he is selected to enter into the temple. Now this is literally a once in a lifetime opportunity for most of the priests because there were so many, they didn't get to go in. So this is a big deal. Now we know it wasn't by chance because we know that God wants Zechariah in the temple because he's going to send Gabriel to give him a special message from heaven. A particular word from God. Look at verse 11. And there appeared to him, speaking of Zechariah, an angel of the Lord, whom we know to be Gabriel, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. That's, that's a nice, long way of saying he was scared to death. Terrified, verse 13. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Now, without a son, Zechariah's family line, at least his immediate line, would come to an end, which was not only grievous in the Jewish culture, but considered by some to be a curse upon that family. But here, Zechariah is told that the angel Gabriel is going to bless him and bless his wife Elizabeth, even though they're what? They're beyond childbearing years. They're too old to get pregnant. God was going to answer their prayers. And these are prayers, my beloved. I don't think they were praying these prayers recently. They were praying them probably years before. But God heard them, and God's now going to answer them, not just by bringing them a son, but it says in verse 15, a son who will be great in the eyes of God, a son who would be the forerunner of Jesus Christ. In fact, he tells Zechariah that you're going to name your son John, which means Yahweh, has been gracious. Yahweh has been gracious. Six months after Elizabeth becomes pregnant with John, Gabriel is sent again by God to visit Elizabeth's cousin, whom we know to be Mary, to announce another supernatural birth. Drop your eyes down to verse 26 with me. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. That's important because that's where Jesus is going to be raised. Verse 27, to a virgin betrothed to a man, that's a fancy way of saying engagement, but it's a legal engagement, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now most of you know these names well, you've heard these stories multiple times, but I want you to notice God is sending an angel now a second time to a woman who is engaged to be married but is not married, which means that they haven't consummated the marriage. She's still a virgin, So this is prior to the wedding ceremony, prior to the honeymoon. So her ability to get pregnant would be absolutely impossible unless she was unfaithful, which she was not. But God says he's going to come to her and he's going to do something miraculous to bring about this promise of a son being born of a virgin. Look at verse 28. And he, Gabriel, came to her, came to Mary, and said, greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. Mary is identified as favored. You could translate that as blessed by God. Now, I know that our Catholic friends like to take this and other passages in Luke, and they elevate Mary to a status they ought not, Uh, We do the exact opposite. We are so repelled by Maryology that we press Mary down to a place that we, we don't want her to be. She's favored by God. She's blessed by God, not because of her personal piety, but because God has chosen her to carry his own son. That's a big deal, I think. Verse 29. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greetings this might be. Otherwise, she was scared to death as well. That was a common response, by the way, when angels showed up. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. So like Zechariah in the temple, Mary is filled with fear, but Gabriel calms her fears and explains why he's there. Verse 31, he says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. So like her cousin Elizabeth, Mary too would have a supernatural conception of a child here. And she would give birth to a son, but the son's name would not be John or John number two. It would be Jesus. And you know Jesus is the Greek derivative of the Hebrew Joshua, Yahshua, which means what? Yahweh saves. Yahweh is salvation. And so the name tells us much. Now Luke begins this historical count with the announcement of the birth of these, the supernatural conception and birth of these two extraordinary men because he is trying to establish a turning point in history. We often read through the, the narrative of the coming of John or Jesus and we always think of it in the context of Christmas, but Luke's doing that because he's saying this, this point in history is new. From Genesis chapter three, when God first made the promise that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head, to all the covenants made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and ultimately David, that a Savior would come into this world and break into it and establish this new messianic age, this new age of the Savior. Here, God is finally announcing it has come. That's why it's such a big deal. That's why Luke is spending so much time developing the conception and the birth of John the Baptist and of Jesus. God is no longer silent You know, he hadn't spoken to a prophet for over 400 years. Malachi was the last prophet spoken to in the 5th century BC and now God speaks because God is moving. He's gonna send the Savior, the Messiah's coming into the world, a whole new age of human history. Everything was about to change. He was gonna overcome Elizabeth's barrenness and age by bringing in the last Old Testament prophet. He was going to overcome Mary's virginity by bringing in literally the Son of God in the flesh and the hope of salvation for sinful man, the beginning of restoration for a broken world. As a boomer, I'm old enough to remember all the hoopla that surrounded 1999, and you don't have to be a boomer to remember that, just a little bit older how the world waited with great anticipation and fear when that clock struck midnight on December 31st, 1999 and became January 1st, 2000. There was wild speculation, financial crashes, power outages, the Y2K bug, and of course, those who predicted the end of the world come January 1, 2000. Well, if you're a boomer like me, January 1, 2000 came like any other day to say it was anticlimactic would be an understatement given what the mainstream media built it up to be as earthbound creatures who live a very short period of time only a few short years relative to the age of the universe or even eternity it's understandable my beloved and i see how at least from our perspective during our lifetime it seems like nothing really changes you go to bed you get up You do your day, you go to bed, you get up, you do your day, years pass, and then you die. And that seems to be how everything always is, how it always was, and how it always will be. So God does something here out of great compassion for our skewed perspective of reality. God, out of his great compassion for sinful man and his sensitivity to our limited perception of reality, he sends His angel Gabriel into space and time to in no uncertain terms announce what? Everything is changing. My son is coming. The messianic age will be at hand. Live accordingly. It's not just an incredible story that we talk about during Christmas time. God is sending Gabriel to say everything is changing. The plot line of God's redemptive plan is ending the end. The last days are here the new age was beginning, and the leading actor, Jesus Christ, was going to take center stage. That's what these announcements are about the coming of the new age. So, that's the first point. I hope you got it. I hope you firmly believe it. God then does something extraordinary, He doesn't want us wandering around in this new age not knowing who to follow. He tells us about two great men, one infinitely greater, and the one that we are called to follow faithfully. Point number two, I pray you're to with me, the greatness of the Messiah. So we know that the Messianic age is here. Now we want to know who to follow in this Messianic age. After revealing to Zechariah that he and Elizabeth were going to give birth to a son, whose name would be John, and he would be great. Look at verse 14. The angel says to Zechariah still inside the temple and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth, not just Elizabeth and Zechariah for he will be great before the Lord. Now of course, we would expect Zechariah and Elizabeth to be joyful. They're bringing a son into the world. So we understand that. But it says here that many will be and, and the reason many would be is because John will be the first prophet in 400 years to speak And the last prophet to speak in the context of the Old Testament and the Old Covenant. He would be great in the eyes of God as this last Old Testament prophet proclaims his truth. How great would he be? Look at verse 15. He would abstain from all alcohol, which means he's going to be set apart by God. And instead of being filled with alcohol, look at verse 15, latter part, he would be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. This is an extraordinary and unique statement in the storyline of Scripture. You know that, right? You say, well, no, we believe in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's Pentecost and post-Pentecost, right? So John, even the greatest prophets in the Old Testament, the, old, the Holy Spirit would come upon them to exercise a particular act or to, to proclaim a particular word from God. But here, we're told that that John is going to receive the Holy Spirit from birth in his mother's womb, not only equipping him to, to live in the spirit and power of Elijah. Elijah, as you know, is one of the greatest Old Testament prophets doing lots of amazing things. So he would have the Holy Spirit to live in the spirit and power of Elijah, but also revealing, my beloved, the role the Holy Spirit would play in this new age, in the Messianic age, that the Holy Spirit In filling John, John would be that precursor to the Holy Spirit filling all those who are what? Who are born again. Filling every single true believer in the church. John being filled with the Holy Spirit from birth reveals and points to the day of Pentecost when all those who come to a saving grace are filled with that same what? Supernatural power to live supernatural lives in the messianic age. It would be by the power of the Holy Spirit that John would call the people to repentance and faith in God. Look at verse 16. Here's his his commission. He, John, will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He would preach harmony in the Jewish homes to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. And he would call the disobedient to turn from their foolish ways. latter part of verse 17. And the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. He would do all this for one particular and incredible purpose. Look at the latter part of verse 17 again to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. That was John's commission. That's why God brought him into this world to fulfill what the, uh, the prophet Isaiah had prophesied to centuries before about this forerunner to the Messiah. Isaiah 40, verse three, Isaiah said, he would come to prepare the way of the Lord and make his path straight. You say, well, what, is that? what does that even mean? In, in the ancient days, when kings would come to visit a community or a city, they would have a forerunner go out, literally go before them into that town or into that people, and they would prepare the place for the king. They'd make sure that it was safe from enemies. They'd mer- make sure that it was, it was provided for in terms of it's a king, so there'd be luxury, there'd be food, there'd be provision, and the, the forerunner would go beforehand. So John's commission here is to be the forerunner for Christ, the king of the universe, And he's coming to make the world ready, not by providing a a physical palace, but by calling people to repentance of their sins because the king who is coming is what? He's holy. He's holy. And for us to receive this king, we must repent and trust in him. In the Gospel of Matthew, when speaking of John, Jesus said in Matthew eleven eleven, truly I say to you, among those born of women there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. John was greater than all the prophets and all the kings of Israel's past. Not only because he was the final Old Testament prophet, he was the last signpost taking all the law and all the prophets and pointing to Jesus Christ. He's the last signpost. But he was greater than all the prophets because of his supernatural birth and he was filled by the Holy Spirit that he would spend his entire ministry in humility serving God. He was great because he had a great mission and that was to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. He was greater than Abraham. He was greater than Isaac. He was greater than Moses. He was greater than David and Isaiah and Elijah. The greatest man born of a woman to date is what Jesus was saying. And yet, as great as a man as John was, John understood that no one compared to the one he was going to proclaim. John was one of the greatest men ever born. And yet it was John who would later say in John chapter 1, verse 27, of Jesus, the strap of whose sandals, John said, I am not worthy to untie. That's the greatest man ever born of a woman saying that about Jesus Christ the greater one. Well, it's this greater one that Gabriel reveals to Mary. Look at verse 32. Drop your eyes down a bit. Gabriel's talking to Mary and he says in verse 32, he, speaking of Jesus, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. So John, the last Old Testament prophet, is called what? The prophet of the Most High, the Most High God and yet Jesus is identified as the Son of the Most High. A categorical and very important distinction. This Jesus to be born of the Virgin Mary is none other than God's eternally begotten Son. You know it. God from God, light from light, true God from true God. One in being with the Father. In other words, this Son that's going to be born to this Virgin is God in the flesh. You say, well then of course he must be greater than John the Baptist. God in the flesh, how much greater? John came to herald and proclaim, Jesus came to reign. Look at verse 32, the latter part. The Lord God, that's God the Father, will give to him, Jesus Christ, the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And so Gabriel makes this announcement of this new messianic age. This child being born of this virgin is in fact the Savior. He is the son of David. He is the king that was promised. Going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and the covenants made with Abraham and the promise made to David. Remember, it was David that God said to David in 2 Samuel 7, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, offspring singular, and I will establish his kingdom. That's Christ. And that's the kingdom of Christ. And then... God said, he shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom for how long? Forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. This is the promise that the Jews waited for. Genesis chapter three, the Abraham made the covenant that the son of David would come as a powerful king and overcome the enemies of God's people. He'd be like one of the great judges of old that would come and bring back Glory. But not just any kingdom, a kingdom that would have no end. Now most of you know that in Jesus' day, uh, they were looking for a very different type of Messiah. They were looking for someone to come in and establish the glory of the kingdom of David, the expansion of, the, of Israel proper. And that would have obviously included the overcoming of their Roman oppressor to take out Rome. But what the people of Jesus' day had forgotten and most people throughout human history have forgotten is that the greatest enemy of man is not a Roman emperor. It's not a bad politician or a bad political party. The greatest enemy of man has always been Satan's sin and death. Going all the way back to the garden, it's the lying serpent that deceived Adam and Eve into eating and falling and bringing us with them. And because the greatest enemy to man is Satan and it is sin and his death, it requires God himself coming in the flesh to overcome this particular curse so that man is not subject to it all the way into eternity. Now neither Mary nor the Jews of Jesus' day were ready to receive God in the flesh. I don't know that any generation in human history would be ready to receive God in the flesh. They were looking for a greater Moses and a greater David but not an infinitely greater son of God. God in the flesh coming to do a work that only he could do. And yet this is the exact message that John the Baptist was given to proclaim and this is the exact thing that Gabriel tells Mary that your son is going to be God in the flesh because only God in the flesh by giving his life on the cross for us gives us any hope of coming back into a right relationship with God the Father. Only God in the flesh doing this great work that we might be forgiven of our sins and received into the eternal kingdom. My beloved John the Baptist, he was a great man of God. He was an amazing man of God, greater than any prophet before him. But Luke intentionally puts John and Jesus side by side at the beginning of his gospel account to magnify the greater greatness of Jesus. He does it intentionally. So you go back between John, Jesus, John, Jesus as the story unfolds so that you can say, wow, John was great. The greatest man ever born of a woman but Jesus is infinitely greater. That's worth an amen, I think. Infinitely greater is this one to be born of the Virgin Mary. God wants us to know who we're supposed to follow in this messianic age. Later in John's ministry, after, after baptizing Jesus in the Jordan, the greatest man on earth, that's John, said this of Jesus. He, Jesus, must increase and I must decrease. I, the greatest man ever born of a woman, I must decrease and Christ must increase. He who comes from heaven is what? Above all. Now I know as Americans, we, we like to think of ourselves as Independent thinkers and independent doers that we blaze our own trails, and that is a total joke. I mean, we are we are followers. All people are followers. They're following someone. Truth be told, you're following someone. I pray it's Christ. But it may not be. It may be your favorite author, it may be a movie star, it may be an entrepreneur, God forbid, it may be a politician. If you think that we do not as a people follow, then just look at the results on social media. In fact, we use that term what? Who are you following? This was kind of scary actually when I did this little search. Selena Gomez is number one in who people follow in social media. 499 million followers. In the United States. That's 1.5% of the US population, 1.5 times the United States population following one person. Dwayne Johnson's comes in a nice second at 435 million followers. Those who they think are great, those who they think are worthy of being followed. Luke comes and tells us here that the greatest man ever born of a woman said that you shouldn't even follow him. He said you're supposed to follow Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is infinitely greater. Only Jesus is worthy of being followed because only Jesus can lead us into eternal life. Only Jesus is worthy to be followed because only Jesus can lead us into eternal life. 2,000 years ago, long before social media, God's son, the Savior of the world, was born of a Virgin Mary so that he could, through the cross, offer us salvation by grace through faith so that we could have someone to follow into eternal life. This is the great news of the Christmas season, my beloved, that following Jesus leads to, listen, eternal life to all who what? To all who believe. Following Jesus leads to eternal life for all who believe. But you have to believe. If you want to enjoy the blessings of this messianic age and you want to participate in the work of this Messiah, then you have to believe, you have to trust, you have to put your faith in the greatest one. Not Abraham, not Isaac, not Jacob, not David, not John, not Selena Gomez, not Dwayne Johnson, but Jesus Christ. So we've seen one, the age of the Messiah, two, the greatness of the Messiah. The last one, last point here is that our belief in the Messiah is what brings about the promise and its fulfillment. Look at verse 18. <clears throat> our belief in this Messiah, verse 18. Zechariah said to the angel, he's still in the temple, Gabriel's talking to him. Zachariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? How shall I know that I will give birth to a son through my wife Elizabeth? For I'm old, and my wife is advanced in years. He's saying, listen, there's no way we're going to have kids. <clears throat> Gabriel, I, I know you're an angel. You probably don't know about these things, but we're too old to have children. Now, for, we read this, and, and it translates well, I think. It sounds like an honest question. He just wants to know, how, how's this going to happen? But it's not. He, he's demanding proof. He's actually acts, asking for a sign. It's very much in line with if you remember uh, Abraham's question to God when God said he's going to give him the promised land, God, Genesis fifteen eight, Abraham said, how am I to know I shall possess it? In other words, give me a sign. Prove it, God. Prove it. Zechariah and Elizabeth were beyond childbearing years. Therefore, a son... By natural means was not possible. Any child by natural means was not possible. That's what Zechariah is saying. Can't be done. Look at verse 19. The angel Gabriel answered him. <laughs> I am Gabriel. That's an impressive statement. It's not just talking to some random angelic creatures. I am angel, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. So he's close to the Lord. And I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. God sent Gabriel from his presence to Zechariah in the temple to tell him this. The good news that Zechariah's son would serve God by announcing God's son to the world. Zechariah's response was not a good response. Look at verse 20. The angel said, And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, the day that John is born. Because you did not believe my works, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, all those of you remember who were outside praying, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. It was taking too long. He was supposed to go in and clean the altar of incense, light the new incense altar, and then leave. And he's still hanging out inside the temple. And when he came out he was unable to speak to them and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. They knew something supernatural had taken place. Even they had greater faith. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. He could not speak. Verse 23, and when his time of service was ended at the end of that week, he went to his home still unable to speak. So here you have Zechariah, this righteous man called into the temple to serve God at the altar of incense. He's visited by an angel. The angel tells him you're going to give birth to a son. You're going to call him John. And Zechariah does not believe him. It's a very sad state. He's a righteous man. He's a priest. He's in the temple. He speaks to an angel. And he still doesn't believe God's word. That's Compelling for us, my beloved. How easily we can be deceived amidst all the good works and all the righteousness that we think God must be pleased with this and yet God speaks and we do not believe. We do not listen. We do not live in accordance with his teachings. Zachariah wants a sign. He wants some proof from God. He's testing God. And so God gives him a sign. (laughs) Not the sign he wants. It's like that child who goes to the parent and says, Mom and Dad, I'm bored. And they said, I can fix that. And now the child's off doing a chore, saying, I'll never ask that question again. I'll never say that again. Well, Zechariah asked for a sign. He got a sign. He could not speak. In fact, he could not hear. We know that from verse 62. We'll see that next week. He could not speak and he could not hear. He was rendered a deaf mute because of his demand for a sign. You know how difficult that must have been for Zechariah? <laughs> he comes home after his week, like he was serving the eighth of the 24 divisions of the, of the priesthood and he comes home and he's like, he can't say anything. He saw Gabriel. Gabriel told him, you're gonna have a son. He's gonna be a great man. You're gonna name him John. He can't say a word to anybody, including Elizabeth. Challenging? Incredible. It's quite possible that Zechariah was the first person in human history to know that the age of Messiah had come. It's quite possible. He's the first one to know it and he can't tell anybody. You talk about a secret. He couldn't tell anybody because he refused to believe. He couldn't speak God's truth because he doubted God's truth. You see, my friends, to not believe the word of God as spoken, listen, by, Zachariah, by Gabriel to Zechariah or by a lowly pastor like me to you from the pulpit. To not believe the word of God is not simply disobeying the laws of God. It is calling into question God himself. To not believe and submit and follow the word of God is to call God a liar It's to say, God, that you do not know what is best for me or for my life. It's the same struggle that we had in Genesis chapter three. It's the same struggle that Adam and Eve had. They were told what? Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat. Every other tree you can, not that one. Then Satan came along and he said, if you eat from it, you're not gonna die. That's a lie. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will what? Be like God. And they liked the way that sounded. And so they believed Satan instead of God's truthful words and they brought death upon themselves, physical death and spiritual death upon all mankind. They didn't believe, my beloved, that God had their best interests in mind. Before they took and before they ate in their hearts, they had to say, we do not trust God. He doesn't want what's best for us. He's holding us back. We can be like God if we eat from this tree. He doesn't want us to be like him. And so they ate because they did not trust. It's the same struggle today, my beloved, for every single one of us. Every time we hear the word of God and we do not do, every time we sin against God willfully and knowingly, we are we do not trust you, God, We are calling you a liar that you do not know what is best for us and you do not want what is best for us. If God has spoken through the law and the prophets, if God has made himself and his plan of salvation known through the supernatural birth of his son, through his sinless life, his sacrificial death, his resurrection from the dead, if God has made himself known by outpouring the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the establishment of the church, if God has made himself known through his word, then when we say to God, we will not obey, we are no different than Zechariah. When we hear, but we do not do, like Zechariah, we're saying, we do not trust you. We do not trust you have our best interests in mind. And deep down, my beloved, when we sin, that's what we're saying, are we not? When we sin against God, when we knowingly sin against God, we're saying that we know better. This is what your law says, Lord, but I'm gonna do this because I know better. You don't want what's best for me. I want what's best for me. So we believe our own words because we think that our own words and our own truth will lead to a happier, more successful Life. Deep down, we think we know better. Every time we do not believe the word of God and follow it. Over the past 25 years, I've presided over dozens of weddings. And without exception, I meet with the bride and groom-to-be before the wedding, and we do what's called premarital counseling. I hate that title. We make sure they're compatible for marriage. How about that? That's better. We work through several things, including the word of God. What does it mean to be a godly husband? What does it mean to be a godly wife? What does it mean to become one in flesh in the covenant of marriage? We go through this six weeks, eight weeks, longer for some. God's word is very clear. And yet, my beloved, nearly half of all the marriages I've done in the past 25 years, half are now have ended in either divorce or unhappy marriages. And you think, well, how is that possible? These are Christians who receive biblical counsel. They heard God speak. They know how they're supposed to live. And yet, they end up in divorce or bad marriages. How is that possible? You know how that's possible. It's not because they don't know the word of God. And it's not because God's word is wrong on marriage. He instituted it. It's because they think they know better. And so they've chosen decisions, life decisions, sometimes ending in divorce because they think that will make them happy. That will make them happy. Now you might be saying in your heart, you make it sound so easy, just believe. I'm not saying that. It is difficult to believe but if you are hearing this and you're thinking God's word is hard, faith like this is difficult, it's challenging, especially today. You talk about the messianic age. This is the age of the empirical method. In order for us to believe, we must see. And you're asking us to, to believe in faith. Some of you may be saying, this type of faith is not possible. It's impossible to follow Jesus like this, even though he is the greatest one and worthy to be followed. Don't throw in your towel. Look at verse 34. After Gabriel tells Mary that she will give birth to the son of the Most High who will reign as king forever on the throne of David, verse 34, Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? You're thinking, "Uh uh-oh, wrong thing to do. Don't ask the question. We know what happened to Zechariah. But Mary's was not said in rebellion. It was not a statement of disbelief. It was not asking for a sign It was a humble inquiry on how God was going to conceive a child in her womb when she was a virgin. She wasn't even married. How was this possible? How could God get her pregnant? Look at verse 35. The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy. That means set apart for God, the Son of God. You want to talk about difficult things to believe in the Bible? My beloved, this is one. You know what Gabriel just said to Mary the Holy Spirit's going to come into your womb and plant a seed the eternal son of God who has always been is going to condescend into the womb of of here a a young Jewish girl and she's going to become pregnant with God. God Almighty is going to take on flesh and bone in Mary's womb. He will be what? He will be the God-man. The God-man. Truly God and truly man. You know, it it took the church 450 years to settle down on this teaching. The, the, The theological teaching is known as the hypostatic union. Jesus Christ, truly God and truly man. 450 years the church wrestled to get to this orthodox view that Jesus Christ is truly God, truly man, possessing, here's the definition, fully both natures, God and man, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. Truly God, truly man. 450 years, the greatest minds in the church wrestled with this, and yet Mary, this young Jewish bride-to-be from Galilee, in her limited understanding, what? She simply believed. She simply believed. God's word. How was she able to do this? How was Mary able to have faith like this? Last few verses tell us and we'll close. You should be saying, I want faith like Mary. You don't want faith like Zechariah. Zechariah was saved. Zechariah is going to come back. We'll, we'll hear from Zechariah again. But you want faith like Mary. You want to be able to hear God's word, believe God's word, and submit to it joyfully. Look at verse 36. Gabriel continued speaking. He said, Behold, your relative Elizabeth is in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, so miraculous work there. And then verse 37, for nothing will be impossible with God. I mean, bringing, bringing Elizabeth's barren womb to fertility that she might bear John the Baptist, is, is that a big deal for God? He made her. Is it a big deal for God to take a virgin like Mary, and through the Holy Spirit, bring about the conception of the God-man? It's not for God. It's no big deal for God. One of the first things you need to do if you want to have faith like Mary is take your skeptical heart, your skeptical Christian heart, and submit it to the Word of God, not because you say that's the Word of God, but because of who spoke it. We're still so skeptical as Christians. Every time, my beloved, every time you read the word of God and you do something different, you're, you're being a skeptic. You know that. You're being a skeptic. The one who spoke the word is what? It's the God most high. That's the, that phrase is used to describe, there's no higher God. Right? That makes sense. God the most high. There's no God higher than God. Therefore, he is the God. He's the ultimate God. We know him to be all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present, and actively involved in his creation. Your God. He's the one who spoke. What could be impossible for a God like this? The sending of His Son to earth to become a man so He could die for our sins? Impossible. Of course not. The receiving of His Son's sacrifice on the cross as a payment for our sins? Impossible. Of course not. God's ability to forgive completely all those who repent and believe and put their faith in the Son? Impossible. Of course not. You're living testimony to it. God's ability to grant eternal life to all those who believe, impossible? Of course not. Is it impossible for God to restore his broken creation, to make all things new by seating his son upon the throne who will reign forever and ever? Of course not. With man, all these things are impossible. But with God, nothing is impossible Gabriel was right. What's so extraordinary, my beloved, is that Mary understood it. She believed it. She believed that all things were possible for God. And she believed, listen, she believed that she was not like a God. She was not deceived by Satan as Adam and Eve were. She did not think that she had some supernatural standing. It's crazy the irony around Mariology today. She knew she was not like a God. She knew what? She knew she was a servant of God. Look at verse 38. Mary said, this is her response to Gabriel. Behold, I am the servant, I am the slave, I am the bondservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word, period. That's a mic drop, walk off the stage. Unbelievable response to what she had just been told. Mary's clarity here about who God is and her role in the kingdom is breathtaking. Breathtaking. God has spoken to her through this angel, his direct words, and Mary receives a very challenging word as what, as a humble servant, as we're all supposed to receive God's word. She declares, behold, I am a servant of the Lord. That's not, I'm not, she's not saying, but Lord, all right, Lord, I'll do this for you right now. A servant of the Lord is not doing something for God. A servant of the Lord is someone who gives their entire life for God. She's saying, my life, my identity, and my purpose, God, is to serve you. That's the statement in verse 38. I would argue that Mary understood what it means to be a servant far better than most evangelical Christians indwelt by the Holy Spirit today. How is that possible? We have the Spirit, we have the Word And yet we do not believe like Mary believed. Mary knew she was not her own. Mary knew that her purpose was to serve her creator. To serve him according to his word. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. What you have said. My friends, can we... Can we possibly complain at how difficult it is to believe and submit to the word of God in light of Mary's response? Do we have any standing today? Can we say the word of God? What it calls us to is too challenging. You have not been asked to carry God in your womb. It's absolutely extraordinary what Mary was asked to do. You're going to conceive supernaturally my eternal son. You talk about pressure. Mary knew she'd be ridiculed. She'd be ridiculed as what? The pregnant virgin. And then when they ask, who's the father? God? Sure. She knew. She knew submitting to God's word like this would bring hardship and suffering. And maybe she even knew of the pain she would experience in watching her son go through the passion. But she also knew she was a servant. She knew that God was her master and that she knew that, God, she knew that God is good. And because God is good and because God is her master, she said whatever God ordains is what? Is right. It's not just right, it's right and it's good. It's good for God, it's good for God's kingdom. And Mary understood, maybe far better than we do, it was good for her. Submitting to God's word is good for you, even when it's really, really hard, even when the circumstances that follow may bring pain and suffering. My beloved, God wants what's best in your life. He's given us His word that we might live in accordance with it so that we can live truly our best life now, not in the perverted sense. My beloved, if you believe that nothing is impossible for God, including your walking in faith and obedience to him, if you believe that, and if you truly believe that God's plans for you are your best plans, best plans for happiness, best plans for profit, best plans for your way of life, then when you read your Bible or you hear a sermon like this preached or you go to a Bible study, You'll respond to God's word, not like Zechariah, not like Adam and Eve. You'll respond like Mary. You will hear, you will believe, and you will do with a joyful heart. You'll want to know the word, and you'll want to submit to it, because deep down you trust the one who spoke. you want to hear God's word and do God's word, because deep down you trust God the Father. You're not calling him a liar. You're not calling his character into question. You're saying, Father, I know you. I know your son. I know you're good. Therefore, what? Thy will be done. In my life, in your life, as it is in heaven. Friends, I don't want you to be a spiritual boomer. Living out of step with these times as though nothing has changed. Everything has changed when Christ entered this world. Man's calling in the messianic age is simple. Follow Christ. Believe His word. Be blessed by Him. The age has come and Christ is worthy of your allegiance. And whether you believe it or not, I will tell you, if you want the most blessed, most happy, most satisfying life possible, you'll be like Mary. You'll believe and follow Christ according to his word. Believe it or not, this is what the Christmas season is all about. The age of the Messiah. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we hear these extraordinary truths about you breaking into human history, 2,000 years ago through the supernatural conception of John the Baptist and then your son, Jesus Christ. And I know most of us believe these narratives to be true, but I think many of us do not live in accordance with them. I ask, Father, that you would make clear that this messianic age is upon us, whether we believe it or not. And that you would show us, Lord, how to live in light of the age being here. Show us the greatness of Christ that we might want to follow him. And show us the faith of Mary that we might, because of you, the one who has spoken, because of your goodness, we might want to hear, believe, and do exactly what you call us to do. I pray, Lord, you would bless my brothers and sisters, bless our church with that power in your spirit to live as the people that have been redeemed by Christ. Do that, Lord, that we might have the greatest impact on our family and friends in this community, that they might see the work that Christ has done and be saved too. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thanks for listening. Christ Community Church is a Reformed Baptist church in San Jose, California. If you'd like more information on our church, please visit lovinglord.org. From there, you can find service times, weekly gatherings, our sermon archive, and other resources. For video content, please visit our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you again for listening.